I've spent the last three years learning from some of the most ingenious fund managers around. And now I've decided to take the plunge and start my own fund. The real question is, how will I do it? With no investors and without an Ivy League degree, this podcast is going to give you the answer. Join me and follow along as I share mine and other stories as we start and build multi-million dollar investment funds. I'm Bridger Pennington, and this is Investment Fund Secrets. All right, all right. Welcome back to the show. Today we got with us Brad Blazer. Brad, welcome to the show. How are you doing today? I'm doing great, Bridger. Man, it's great to be here. This is going to be a fun. This is going to be a fun episode. So Brad uh, has raised over two billion dollars as a billion, like just like a old Trump quote there. Two billion dollars as a capital raiser. Runs a company called Capital School Global Global Company. And you guys do two events a year. What are, what's the name of your event as well? Yeah, so we do two events a year called Capital Con. And uh, we just did one in April. It was phenomenal. We had over 100 people there. We're, you know, in the throes of planning the one for the fall. It'll be late October, early November. Um, and it's really just designed to, you know, bring people together that want to learn how to raise investor capital, how to use other people's money how to get started as a real estate entrepreneur or, you know, use other people's money in some other form or fashion. And uh, just fun, man. Yeah, well, I'm excited to talk capital raising, all things there. Funny enough too, though. So we we are looking at throwing an event called FundCon. I love it. And we this is even before we met, but I bought the domain FundCon. I was like, and it was kind of expensive. It was like five grand or something for this domain. I was like, you know what? I'm going to grab it. It sounds like a great name. And I talked to my one of my mentors about it. And he's like, FundCon? That sounds like like a con man, like you're going to steal, like you can't put the words fund and con together. And I was like, oh, I guess that's a good point. Like, <laughs> it's not a great name. Like, that's not a great name. And I was like, I thought it was amazing, but. I think it's um, a great name. I'll, I'll be there, so. <laughs> Capital con, though, it flows a little bit better, but like fund and con, it was like, oh. And like when he said it, it was like, I'm an idiot. Like, why did I spend five grand on that domain? Like, I'm an, yeah. Anyways. You live and you learn, but Brad, we're welcome to, it's going to be fun to have you on. Um, you're in Texas as correct. well. Yeah, we're in Texas, uh, correct. You've seen a lot of deals uh, throughout your lifetime. I'm, I'm, well, I've, I've heard from you and I know that you've seen a lot yeah. of stuff. Um, walk us through, you know, I, I actually, I like to, and I will open this up. I'm going to keep this thing a little bit different now. I want to keep you on your toes, but walk us through one of the deals that, that went south. I know everyone loves to talk about the deals that crushed it. We, yeah. everyone gave tons of money. Walk us through a deal that went south. And I know a lot of people listening, you know, they have this, this worry. Mm -hmm. I'm going to go out and raise money and from people that trust me and I'm going to give them, you know, and, and the, the matter of fact is when you're in the game, as long as you are, some deals are going to go south, yeah. right? Things are not, not going to turn out like roses, like you planned. So do you have an example of something that maybe went sour in your life, be a little bit vulnerable? <laughs> and then number two, how did you deal with investors and stuff and how did it all go out? Sure. You know, um, I've had more than one deal, actually, uh, you know, when you've been doing this for 30 years like I have and you were the CEO of an oil company for close to a decade, uh, you run across a, a couple bumps in the road. But uh, I remember vividly when I was in the oil business, uh, you know, we were drilling for oil and natural gas and we had rigs going in Texas, Oklahoma, Louisiana, Bridger. And, um, you know, we just ended up drilling a bad well. It was a dry hole. And uh, there was just, unfortunately, uh, you know, no presence of hydrocarbons down in the ground. We, you know, ran the logs and did all the tests and everything. And, uh, you know, it's pretty hard going back to an investor and trying to explain to them that, you know, pretty much they've lost their entire investment. I equate it to being a doctor that goes into surgery and does everything you can to save a patient's life. And you have to walk out and 
unfortunately shared the news with the family that, uh, you know, you lost the patient. They died on the operating table. But um, we drilled this bad well, you know, uh, geologically it was in an area where there was a lot of hydrocarbons, but sometimes when you drill, you're on the fringe or, you know, you're off the shelf. And what really amazed me about this deal, I won't say it was a bad deal, but certainly when you raise, uh, you know, about a million, five, two million dollars to poke a hole in the ground, it's like throwing it out the window. We had a large number of our investors that came back and teed up and invested again. And one of the things I learned early in my um, my game of fundraising, as it relates to going back to these people, like you know, you just lost a hundred thousand dollars, you know, like why are you giving me another hundred? Um, it was largely because of trust and honesty and transparency. They they kept saying, look, you know, your quarterly newsletters, your annual reports, the calls that you put out, um, and the fact that when you're doing business. We know that you're engaging, you know, the best of the best. You know, you don't use local wireline services or, you know, you don't use, uh, you know, people locally. You're using Schlumberger. You're using Halliburton, Dresser Atlas. These are global companies. And so we know the engineers and the people that you have on location are highly qualified. It's just that's the risk. You know, we're big investors. We're big boys. And so there's been a couple of deals like that over the course of a decade that were just, you know, bad wells or marginal wells that just didn't go the way we had expected them to. But a lot of the investors, because we were transparent and we did what we told them we were largely going to do, would just largely re-up and invest a second or third time with us. Wow, that's incredible. I think that's, that speaks to how you, well, walk us through a little bit. How, how, did, how did you manage investor relations, right? Right, let's dive into that a little bit more. Yeah. You mentioned a newsletter and reports and stuff like that. What, what did you actually do? So, you know, obviously we were a pretty decent sized company. So we had within the company an investor relations department. We had three people there that were, you know, taking incoming phone calls, uh, processing subscription documents as we were closing new investors, uh, you know, sending out, of course, welcome letters, certificates to basically admit them into our offerings, et cetera, et cetera. And, um, you know, largely what it was really coming down to is every quarter we had a quarterly report that would go out on, quote, each fund or each well. And so the investors in that program were getting updates every quarter. And then at the end of the year, we put together, you know, a real nice annual report, much like a public company. It wasn't obviously completely audited, but it was pretty substantial. And it gave investors just a really good snapshot of, you know, where the company was, where our programs were, uh, those types of things. And then every quarter, what we would do is we would also have a conference call for those investors that wanted to join us just to get on with myself and, of course, some of the other executives in the company, some of our advisors, and really just give people an update on what we were doing, what some of our programs were doing, and kind of really just look out into the future as it related to kind of what we see happening in the industry. And um, it was really just you know a great way to update people because when you're raising money, and you're acting as a fiduciary where people are entrusting their hard-earned dollars with you, the most important thing you always have to understand is you have to maintain that trust. And the only way you're going to be able to maintain that trust is through constant communication, both good news and bad news. And one of the big things I see a lot of entrepreneurs do that raise money is when shit don't go the way it's supposed to, they try to sweep it under the carpet, or worse yet, they become unresponsive. They don't return the phone calls. They all of a sudden, you know, disappear. And that's really just uh, what I think automatically leads to, quote, the next step is, you know, either arbitration or litigation or somebody getting overly concerned because now you're, 
you're not, you know, you're evading the inevitable. And I'm one of the people that always believe you got to be on the forefront of communication, both good and bad news at all times. Uh, that's that's spot on. Uh, you know, being trustworthy in the wins and the losses. Absolutely. And- and, and like to your point of even if you had a big loss, investors, because they trusted you still, because you were honest about the loss, it's the hardest thing to do is, and I, you know, I've had to do this on a few things. You write that letter of, man, we had a bad month or a bad quarter. It's a hard thing to do, but you have to do it. And you have to be honest because you're playing the long-term game, especially a capital raising or fund game. You're not playing the short-term games. That'll get you in jail. If you right. just play the short-term exactly. wins and stuff, you're going to end up in jail. You got to play this as a 30, 40 year game. Yep. And think about your reputation, what happens there as well. Brad, I want to ask you about, um, you know, there's a lot of people that watch this show that want to become better capital raisers. Mm-hmm. And that's where we got you here. You're right. the expert on this. So they want to get better at getting in front of individuals. And we're going to step through each one of these as well. But first thing I want to ask about is the mentality of capital raisers. Let's talk about the yep. psychology <laughs> That a lot of a lot of people just think, well, there's no money out there. I can't raise money. I don't come from X, Y, Z. What are some of those misconceptions? I see you laughing. What are some of those misconceptions, and how can you help people overcome them? Uh, you know, it's kind of funny. It's like, uh, do I need to stand up, pull my pants down, and show people the big brass balls? No. Um, but you've got to be confident. You know, um, really, people that are super affluent that you're going to they don't want to be talked up to and i think one of the biggest challenges for people that have never raised money is yes you want to raise the money there's desperation in raising the capital either there's a deadline maybe you have a closing because you've gone hard on a piece of real estate and the clock is ticking but the second you come across that way it's game over there's no way you're going to get a check so you have so coming across as needy or too beg like you're begging for money. Right, exactly. You don't want to come across like you're begging or like you're overly desperate. You really want to talk to somebody eye to eye. You want to use language they can largely understand so that you're using the lingo of the industry. But more importantly, you really have to talk with a tremendous degree of confidence in your voice that, you know, hey, this is a great deal. I can execute on this deal. And these are the good things that are going to happen as a result of me being able to do that. And here's one thing that I will tell you. Investors do not invest in great ideas. A lot of people think they do. You could have the best idea on the planet and come to a bunch of investors and say, man, I got the greatest idea. It's going to solve all the world's problems, thinking you're going to raise millions of dollars. It don't work that way. What investors look for are great ideas backed by entrepreneurs that can execute Let me say it again. Great ideas backed by entrepreneurs that can execute. If you can't prove or show an investor that you can execute on that strategy or that idea, good luck. Because the chances are you're not going to be successful raising capital. They're looking for people that are winners. And if you can exude that confidence and really express that based on a prior track record or experience in an industry, you're going to be head and shoulders above a lot of the people out there that are competing for investor capital. Wow, that's spot on. One, the the other side of the note is a lot of these investors were entrepreneurs themselves. Yeah, they've absolutely. already built great business and they understand the value of execution. And we talk about in our business a lot is we the one thing that we've tried to distill in our company culture is execution. Yep. We don't have the best ideas. We don't have all the crazy stuff, but we get stuff done at exactly. our company. And we, that's been our one thing. And we've, we didn't even, we just, by nature of who we, I mean, and my co-founder just starting stuff. And we finally said, that's, that's what is our secret sauce is yep. just, we get stuff done. That's it. That's it. And, that's um, 
That's the, I, I think that's spot yep. on. So you mentioned number one, you know, talking at the same level, don't ask, ask or act desperately. Mm-hmm. Number two, being able to backed by a great idea, backed by entrepreneurs that can execute. I think that's spot on. Yep. Um, what else in the psychology? Anything else there? Yeah, absolutely. And I think the third thing, which is probably the most important, is an understanding that very few people are going to invest with you until you build and establish that trust. Mm-hmm. And you know, one of the very difficult things for new entrepreneurs to understand is that you really have to back off and kind of slow down the process. Um, the biggest mistake I see a lot of people making when they pitch or when they try to raise money is they start talking about the investment or about the opportunity too early in the process. And naturally, the investor is going to be nice and cordial and shake their head and go along with the pitch. But when it comes time to close, they're not going to close. And the reason is you've gone all the distance, but what you made the mistake of doing is you didn't put trust first and then pitch the deal. And so one of the things that I've learned and kind of one of the things we mentor many of our students on is how to actually validate at some point in that relationship that trust has been established. And it's one very simple question. And if the person answers that question properly, you know now that you have validated trust and they essentially have given you permission to move forward in that process and call them back and pitch and talk about the investment opportunity. To pitch your deal and present before that is largely just a waste of your time. Wait, what's what's the question? <laughs> I love you, team me up. So, you know, what I share with people <laughs> is that the process of raising money really needs to take place over multiple meetings, multiple Zooms, multiple calls so that you can disarm the person, really get to know them, largely make sure that whatever you're doing is suitable. It's, you know, the SEC, know your client rules, et cetera, et cetera. And so usually what I do is I spend a large amount of time on the first and second call really just getting to know people, asking them Mm -hmm. questions, trying to figure out what's going to tempt them to ultimately invest with us. And then towards the end of that last call, I just say something like, you know, Bridger, it's been great connecting with you, but right now, unfortunately, I just don't have an investment opportunity that I can really talk to you about. And the reason is we always like to give our existing investor base the right of first refusal on most of our ensuing programs, so they tend to fill up pretty quickly. But if I have a small allocation or an opening on something in the future, would you like me to put your name on a list and get back in touch with you? And when they say yes, they have confirmed that they now trust you, but more importantly, the door is opened for you to call them now on a deal. If they say, well, no, or, you know, I got to think about it, then you know you got to go back and work on the trust. But doing that does two things. Number one, it builds scarcity, right? One mm-hmm. of the greatest closes that closers know how to use is what we call the takeaway, right? People want what they perceive they can't get. And so if you build scarcity into the mindset of a prospective investor that your deals fill up quickly, it's like when you call them back and you pitch, if there's any interest, they better get on board or they may never have the chance of investing with you. And so there's definitely a little bit of psychology in the way we communicate with people when we're raising capital. But the other thing it largely also does for you as the capital raiser is it validates that you have gotten to basically what I call the fourth step in a six-step process we call the trust sequence. And the trust sequence are basically six things that have to happen sequentially to build that trust, communicate that relationship. And until you get to number four, where you can validate trust is established, don't bother pitching or presenting an investment opportunity. 
Brad, I love, and people that have followed my show, I've preached that for years. Yeah. And it's great to hear someone like you, an expert, to say the same thing. That's, I do that. I see, I use, it's not, I use said it in a lot more elegant way than I do, but I'll just say, hey, I've got lots of deals coming my way. Can I start sending you deals? Are you a type of person that would like to receive, essentially, right? Like to receive yeah. deals from me and exactly. see, you know, can I, can I get you in my ecosystem? And I, that's perfect to validate that they trust you as an individual. I love the scarcity piece of the first right of refuse. I think that's spot on yep. to, to transition there. So, um, so we talked about the psychology, right? Around the, the money raise. I think that's, that's perfect strategy. Now let's talk about the, the mechanics. So there's a few different pieces of number one, just getting in the room yep. with, Let's call it, let's call it, and most people on the show are, are raising money from high net worths and family offices. We'll just stick yep. to that group for now, not yep. institutions. So getting in the room or getting in front of these individuals is one task. And then a whole nother task is converting them. Like we just mentioned, yep. and I think you gave a little analogy to convert them to someone that could potentially invest. Let's talk for a second about the getting in the room piece Sure. and getting, not just getting in the room, but also getting in the room and, and having status alignment with them, being able to convert them. And then to that second piece of an actual investor. So what are some strategies you use to source these high north individuals? Sometimes they're hard to find and get around. Well, there's no doubt about it. You know, they certainly are. And, you know, as you know, and I'm sure a lot of your listeners know, you know, there's plenty of places online that have links to list and, you know, places you can go like Axial or there's many, uh, you know, networks and clubs, you know, like the Family Office Network with Richard Wilson, or you can go to Opal and attend their, uh, you know, their uh, conference in Newport, Rhode Island. But really what I've largely found with the family office space, uh, especially just due to the amount of affluence and wealth that many of these families have, is they're very, you know, the, the, the office, you, you can't get in, but you can. And really the way to do that is to create a presence in the industry where you're showing up, you're attending some of these events, you're networking, and it's really the consistency that when people start seeing you at multiple events, they start taking notice. Hey, this guy's a player, he's consistent, he's showing up, he's, you know, he's, he's trying. And largely when you get the attention of an office or multiple office, it's really building on that relationship, much the same way you would do with an individual. It's building the trust. But with family offices, they want to see you. I am willing to spend money to hop on a jet and fly to visit with somebody to sit down face to face, especially if they're a family office and they're managing a few hundred million or better yet, a billion or more dollars, because definitely when you sit down at a conference table, you shake a hand, you look somebody in the eyes, there's a relationship that you just can't develop over a phone call or over Zoom. And so once you do that, it's really now just following the cadence of what mm. they're looking for. A lot of times, of course, with these family offices or these larger investors, they're going to be asking for a lot more information than your traditional high net worth individual. Why? Because they're sophisticated. You know, they've got an entire infrastructure with analysts and due diligence people. And so if they come back to you and say, you know, hey, we'd like to dig a little deeper in the financials or, you know, hey, we'd like to dig a little bit deeper and take a look at this, take that as a positive sign because what they're doing is they're moving forward in that process. But at some point, you also have to ask for the investment itself. You have to go back to them and basically close them much the same way you would on an investor because you want to basically bring closure to that conversation. And once they're on board, it's really then taking that relationship and now converting it to where they're an affiliate and an advocate of yours because the family office industry is very close-knit. And a lot of offices, as I'm sure you know, Bridger, work with multiple offices on a big deal. 
they'll go to some of their family office partners and bring them in. It's almost like banks when you're doing a big high rise. They'll go to some other banks to put together a $150 million raise. One bank will put up 50, another bank will put up 80, another bank will come in. That's much the same way these family offices work. And so when you build that relationship, don't be embarrassed about going back after they've committed capital and saying, you know, hey, um, who are you connected with that we should also be speaking to? Because they'll tell you. They'll introduce you better yet. And once you can start creating that momentum, it's all about follow-up. It's all about emails. And most importantly, it's just about consistency, being, being relevant and being present. I'm a firm believer of adding value. We have an email campaign, and we send out a lot of stuff that just adds value. Hey, saw this article and some of the tax benefits of this, or saw something on conservation easements that maybe you did not know about as a wonderful way to reduce your, uh, your taxable income. And so by leading with value first, when it comes time to talk about an investment, they largely come back to us because of that trust. So, so a little bit more detail, like you go to an event, you go to a party, whatever it is, a charity event, whatever, mm -hmm. and you... You meet someone that's in a family office and you're sitting there talking with them. Like, what, like, walk us through the mechanics of, and you mentioned, you know, the principles of adding value or getting them on your, you know, getting in the ecosystem. Like, do you have some tangible, like, what kind of mechanics do you use that you found are useful? You're like, you walk up, hey, I'm, I'm Brad. You know, like, what, where does it go from there? Like, give us anything there that, that you've seen that's worked for you, some, some things yeah. that you've liked to use. Um, you know, usually if I know that they're tied to a family office and I know that there's a relationship with a family office, um, I'll always ask about the history of the family. In other words, you know, tell me a story like, you know, how, how was the wealth created for the family? Like, what did they do? What industry they were in? Because people always like sharing that story. And then, you know, once I kind of get the background of the office or, you know, how they created the wealth, I largely talk about really the purpose of the office. Is it to invest? Is it to create generational wealth where really it's more about, you know, passing that wealth down, multi-generational? And then lastly, I just ask them, like, you know, what type of things do you like to look at? Uh, you know, are you agnostic to one industry or do you invest in multiple industries? And if you do, what size transactions do you look for? Because a lot of family offices, you know, based on their size, will tell you right up front, don't waste our time if there's anything under $10 million. It just doesn't move the needle. So $10 million and above, and we typically like to come in on deals that are of a size of $50 million or greater. And so as you're listening to these things and you're, you know, maybe going back home and kind of making notes, uh, putting them in a CRM or whatever it is you have to kind of track relationships, you start to create what I call an avatar or a profile for these different family offices. And you know then when you have a deal based on how much you're needing to raise, which family offices that you've had conversations with might be better prospects than others, and more importantly, for what reasons. Because you know family offices mm -hmm. typically will invest in certain things that have familiarity to them. And so if you can start building those relationships with family offices that are largely in the space that you're in, mm -hmm. they're then able to bring two things. They bring capital but they can also bring intellectual knowledge and capital yeah, yeah. as an advisor or somebody that might be in, uh, you know, welcome as a board member on a board of directors. So now they're giving advice and they're giving basically intellectual knowledge to the industry you're in. And so I always look for those types of relationships. What I have found on approaching very wealthy people is if you ask for their advice first before you ask for their money, you have a much greater chance of winning them over. Interesting. Huh. 
I like that a lot. Yeah. I've, I've, I've actually, I've actually, for me personally, a number of my current investors were my mentors yep. over the last two or three years. Yep. And Absolutely. they mentored me and helped and coach me. And then it, it, it comes right in. I, I think that's a spot on. I want to ask you on, it sounds like you have a lot of experience with family offices. Mm-hmm. I've heard, we've had a few people on the show that have worked or were, was a CFO of a family office, things like that. Yeah. Uh, what, what, you have any, any in experiences or dynamics? I've just heard every family office is different. Sometimes you're playing into the, you know, the G2, the second generation, the kids, and mm-hmm. you've got to help them feel like it's their deal. And you're playing family dynamics as well. What are some thoughts there? And if you have any, any stories you want to share too, we're sure. with family offices, but. Yeah, you know, there's a family office uh, here in Texas, just right up the highway from us, um, where the family actually at one time was the largest manufacturer of mattresses um, in the United States. They had 10 factory locations and um, they sold out to a private equity firm, I'm sure for, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars. And we were basically uh, coming to them to invest in real estate. And like most family offices, you know, they had a gatekeeper, they had a chief investment officer that was largely in an analytical role to run the numbers and to do the due diligence. And, you know, she liked the deal. And so she said, you know, really, I think the next step is for you guys to come up here to Corsicana and sit down with us and just get to know you better. And so, uh, you know, we drew from Houston up there. It's about a two and a half, maybe three hour drive. Uh, sat down at this nice big conference table, and of course it was largely this individual, the chief investment officer, uh, two or three other analysts, and then us on the other side of the table. And we were just, you know, talking, going back and forth, answering questions. And then she largely said, you know, what I would like to do now is just uh, take a break and, uh, you know, go get Carol. It's his family office. Uh, He's kind of the patriarch. It was actually his father that started the business, but his father passed, and so he's taken over the inheritance. And, um, you know, this guy came in, sat down for like five, maybe 10 minutes, shook her hands, got up and left. And you would think that, you know, for the patriarch, the guy who this is all of his money, he would have wanted to either have sat in for the whole meeting or spent more time. It really wasn't like that. It's like he just wanted to come in, shake her hands, look us in the eye and then defer to the decision makers that he already has working in his company as is. Is it a good investment? Do the numbers make sense? And largely, we were able to get a nice uh, investment from them. And so, you know, it's really, I think, more about going the distance and be willing to go the distance, but much more importantly, understanding that with most family offices, you're going to be very fortunate to actually meet the individual whose office it is. If you do, you're lucky because then you can establish that relationship. But in many cases, they defer to the people on their staff. That's why they have that Mm -hmm. office. They're the ones that are largely making the decisions as it relates to what they're going to invest in or what they're not going to invest in. Hmm. Really cool. That's interesting. I uh, I heard a story from a, someone. They were went to work for a family office, mm-hmm. and he's had you know the investment job. And the first day he showed up, the the head of the family office comes up to him and shakes his hand. He goes, "Don't be a hero. <laughs> your your goal here is not to be a hero." Yeah. Manage, be a good steward over our money. We don't need more money. We just need to maintain exactly. and slowly grow the money we have. And I'm putting my trust in you to, to do this and, yep. um, and to help us do this thing. And so yep. it, was, it was, yeah, it was awesome. Don't be a hero though. I love that. Absolutely. <laughs> don't try to make us these huge returns. So, um, 
So that, you know, that I, 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 there's a lot of great little nuggets in there too. I love this, Brad. Um, now, you know, and we're talking all things capital here and, and I know you've got way more business experience than just capital. So we can, we can touch upon those things as well. Um, but I want to, I want to ask you a few other questions on the actual, like the, the specifics in capital raising, if you're okay to share Sure. inside of a, you know, traditionally we've seen a pitch deck, right. Of, you know, okay, we have a deck, here's the deck. We give the presentation. I want to ask you actually overall, over the last 20 years, 30 years you've been doing this, how has money raising changed? And are you seeing a shift right now? Um, I actually had a a fund manager I was talking to on the phone a few days ago and he's like, Pridger, um, he goes, it's been very weird to raise money because now I am essentially competing against Dogecoin. And all my, I have a couple investors like, oh, I don't want to invest with you. I'll just invest in Dogecoin. I'll be fine. When, back when Dogecoin was like going crazy yeah. and then it crashed yep. and they came back to him and we were like, oh, he's like, okay, you yeah. guys are still doing investment. Yeah. Maybe we'll put some money with you. It's just a, it's an interesting time yeah. for money. It feels like everyone's flush right now. A lot yep. of capital in the markets. How have you seen things change with the use of the internet with capital? I mean, it's a big question, yep. but overall, how have you seen capital change over the past 20 years of capital raising? Well, I actually think it's it's gotten easier to raise capital for many reasons. You know, number one, when I was in the oil business, you know, that was in the you know mid late eighties, early nineties, and uh, we didn't have the internet, we didn't have you know data rooms, we didn't have crowdfunding, and so raising money was largely getting on the phone and just calling people and you know making relationships over the telephone, or better yet, making an appointment to physically go and sit down with somebody. You know, now you have of course crowdfunding. You have um, things like, you know, white label data rooms with multiple platforms that'll create these beautiful data rooms so that you can host your entire offering in a virtual environment and then drive traffic to that and then, you know, utilize DocuSign and straight through processing to automate the entire subscription process where it's all done digitally now. And so I think with a lot of the exemptions that are out there under the Jobs Act, you know, whether it's Reg A or Reg CF or, you know, if you're doing a Reg D 506C, as long as, you know, you're just making sure that the people you're communicating with and bringing in as investors are, you know, accredited, it's like, man, we can advertise now. Let's put a billboard up on, uh, you know, Fifth Avenue in downtown New York, or, you know, let's go to Facebook and LinkedIn and Instagram. So being able to get in front of investors to attract interest, that I think now is much easier than it's ever been. It's now, though, once you have that attention and interest, what you do with it, that then ultimately converts them and makes them an investor. And that's really where I think the art of the game comes in, because I think that things have actually become easier to get in front of the investor. But I think that what you're doing is you're now competing with many other people that are in that investment space where it might be perhaps harder to close the investor simply because there's many more options that are now in front of them. So I think really what you have to do is have a strategy where you largely understand that the perception or the impression you make in that first few minutes has to be world-class. Have to have Mm -hmm. a great pitch deck, have to have quality offering materials, have to have a nice website. It's like you really almost have to bring, quote, the wow factor. So that Mm -hmm. when this investor is looking at you and he's looking at a multitude of other deals that you're competing with, he hopefully comes back to you. And a lot of times I've told people this, you don't have to have the best deal on the street, but if you're the best marketer or your deal is put together with the best presentation, nine out of 10 times, the cash is going to come back to you because it just has, quote, what I call that world-class put-together appearance. You know, and I've seen that multiple times in my career. 
So we really focus our efforts on that, and then it's largely just positioning. It's knowing your message, knowing what you're doing, you know, and then getting out in front of the marketplace using multiple methods. You know, looking for investor capital is kind of like fishing or hunting. You've got to have multiple poles in multiple ponds. And so, you know, for my fund, you know, we use some crowdfunding. You know, we're, we are doing investor events. I'm a member of certain investment groups on the Internet, Facebook, where I'm constantly saying, hey, we're closing on a multifamily deal. Anybody here have an interest? And, you know, we get people that raise their hand. And then, of course, also we're doing it the old-fashioned way. And so, really, when you find one or two methods that work, you just double down and you just mm -hmm. keep going. And that's how, you know, we've been able to raise millions and millions of dollars. But I think now comparing fundraising to the way we used to do it even 20 years ago, it's actually become much, much easier because it's largely automated. It's digital. You know, you're not faxing crap back and forth. You're not mailing subscription documents with a check in the mail. And so the digitization of raising capital has largely accelerated it. But I think also the fact that we've moved in that direction, it's made it a lot more competitive. Hmm. Wow. Interesting. I know it's it's quite a different change. I think we'll continue to see the what happens over the next 10, 15 years of the use. And I think capital yep. are starting to use it more and more and more. And I see it every, you know, more as well. And, and regulators are making it easier for people to use those devices as well yep. to market online. Brad, how did you get into this? How'd you get involved with capital raising? How, what, what spurt? I mean, I don't know if an <laughs> eight-year-old kid says, I want to raise capital my entire life. Like, how did you, <laughs> how'd you get into this? Well, you know, it's a really, it's an interesting story. Um, when I was younger and, uh, you know, I was getting ready to go off to university, uh, I really wanted to be an architect. Uh, I love making models. I was really gifted at design and drawing and just uh, went to school with the, uh, the mindset of, I'm going to be an architect and I'm going to use the architectural skills to become a real estate developer. Because really, in development, that's where you know you make the bulk of the money. And so while I was in school, um, basically in my junior year, I was just looking to make money. So I got out the newspaper, and I'm circling ads for jobs and stuff like that. And uh, there was this one job that just kind of stood out. It said, you know, small oil and gas company looking for people to come on board and raise money. And so I circled it, called them, sent them my resume, went in. And uh, it was a small oil company. And they said, you know, basically what you're going to be hired to do is to get on the phone we're going to teach you how to do this. We're going to give you some scripts. We're going to give you a list. And your job is to build relationships with high net worth individuals all across the country and basically convince them to invest alongside us in our oil and gas drilling programs. And so, you know, I was a 21 year old kid, really didn't know much and was just basically learning how to do this. And so they said, here's the script. Here's what you say. Here's why you say it in this certain way. And, uh, you know, in the first year, I made close to $100,000 working 12 to 15 hours a week between class. Wow. And I'm like, what in the world am I doing going to school to get a college degree, ultimately graduate, make 60 when I'm making more than that working 12 hour weeks. <laughs> so uh, yeah. I just kind of one day decided to do it full time, basically quit going to class, uh, went to work for a second company doing exactly the same thing. Unfortunately, that company lacked ethics. They were committing fraud, and so I found out. I resigned. We filed a class action. We prevailed, ran them out of town, and um, the investor base that I had cultivated turned to me, and I was now 23, and said, Brad, you know, now that you're no longer working with these guys, like, what are you going to do? And I'm like, I have no idea. 
And they said, well, why don't you do what they were doing, but just do it with some honesty. And I saw a huge door open because the capital was available. And so not knowing anything at all about drilling a well, about running an oil company or even running a business, all I really knew how to do was raise capital is I launched an oil company. And I surrounded myself immediately with geologists, the landman, you know, bookkeepers. And, you know, over the course of a decade, we built a pretty nice multi-million dollar company that was raising capital every month with drilling programs. And I think at our peak, we had about 35 employees. And I was just like, you know, on cloud nine, things were great until Tax Reform Act of 87, oil prices collapsed. And that's when I had to make one of the most difficult decisions I probably ever had to make. And that was to essentially collapse the business and move on to something else. Never had to file for bankruptcy because we never had any debt. But I just realized that the things that were basically driving investor capital, i.e. the tax benefits, were now gone. And so without the tax benefits there and with collapsing oil prices, two of the big things that were driving investor traffic disappeared. And I just realized it was time to go do something else. Wow. And yeah. and then after that, what 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 did you do after that? You started getting other deals then and other, other groups well, and things no, like that? Well, no, I took a nice vacation, Bridger. Oh, you did? Okay. <laughs> yeah, I was sitting on a nice little pot of gold, like the little, uh, you know, a leprechaun at the end of the rainbow. And so I was very yeah. fortunate. Um, I just, you know, basically traveled and, uh, you know, did what any kid in his late 20s, early 30s would do that was sitting on a nice chunk of change. But I realized that at some point I had to get back to doing something. And so I went back to college. I uh, came out with a business degree, graduated with mm-hmm. honors, and here I am now out, you know, largely looking for a job. And uh, it was a very disillusioning part of my life because people wanted to offer me salaries that were close to what I used to make in a good month. And I just mm-hmm. said, you know, this isn't going to work. Like, what can I do to get back to a significant level of earnings? And um, one day I just realized that my primary skill was knowing how to raise capital, knowing how to. Mm-hmm go and get money. And so I went to work in the financial services industry, aligning myself with some of the largest real estate syndicators, large private equity firms, raising capital for them, and then putting together my own deals along the way, largely for real estate. And, uh, you know, fast forward now, I've raised over $2 billion, uh, closed some of the largest mega million dollar deals for multiple companies where I set the record for the largest transaction in the history of some of these firms, 11 million, $9 million transactions where, you know, commissions alone are six figures. And uh, I've really just kind of built this reputation globally as like the guy to go to, to ask questions or to learn how to raise money because I've raised capital from every conceivable source you can fathom. You know, the retail investors, which are, you know, the doctors, the engineers, the people that live amongst us in our communities, you know, family offices, RIAs, investment advisory firms. I put together entire syndications where we built a network of broker dealers to raise 100, 200 million dollars. Now we have an army of financial advisors out there every day telling our story. Uh, pensions, insurance companies. I raised 45 million out of the state of Israel. So, you know, even sovereign wealth funds. And so it doesn't really matter what somebody wants to do. We can largely help them. But each one of those are uniquely different. You know, going to a pension, for example, is largely different than going to a family office or going overseas and meeting with the, uh, you know, the, the royal family in Qatar or Oman. Very different because you have to now largely also know the customs and what they do or don't do there. When you go over to the Arabic countries, debt's a bad word. You don't even talk about debt. So when you're doing a real estate deal, it's like, man, that's not even part of the conversation. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. 
Wow. Well, it's an, you've had an incredible career, and uh, and wow, so that's, that's amazing to start from you know twenty two yeah. or twenty one years old. Twenty one years old, basically just getting on the phone, call, calling, pitching people. Yeah. Yeah, I love it. Um, okay, I got a couple more questions for you. For a second, though, where can people find more about Capital School and all the stuff you're doing, and find you online? Where are some good places people can go? Yeah, you know, the best thing to do is just start following me uh, on Instagram. Uh, it's the little asterisk, uh, and then of course just Brad Blazar. You know, my last name is spelled B L A Z like zebra A R. So just go there and uh, start following me. You can also go to my website, just you know www.bradblazar.com. Uh, you can see the books I've written. I've written three books. The newest one, Winning at the Capital Game, which is all about raising capital. Uh, really digs deep into that subject. is now available. So get on the mailing list, request a copy of that. But it also has a link to Capital School and basically talks about what we do uh, in that mentorship and in that training to really teach people how to raise money. Because, you know, raising capital is not really as difficult as a lot of people think it is. Yes, it takes time. Yes, you can't do it overnight, but it is a skill. And I explain that to people. You know, it's like learning how to ride a bike. Once somebody sits you down and gives you a script or says, here's what you try to accomplish on the first call or first conversation, and this is why you're trying to do this. And then on the second call, this is what you're trying to do. You're trying to find out, you know, like what's going to tempt them to invest. Are they looking for growth? Are they looking for income? Or are they looking to invest to put kids through college or to, you know, buy a vacation home? those things that they share with you are going to help you close because you can circle back and bring those up in your closing comments and so i call that you know really it's finding out what the bait is and then really on the third call that's when you hopefully pitch assuming you validated like we did earlier at the end of the second and then the fourth is you know just asking for the order it's closing and you know if you do it and pace it out it doesn't have to be a three or six month process. I tell people, once you have your investor package complete, you can then go from zero to closing table in a short of time is four to five weeks. Because each mm -hmm. one of these follow-ups or each one of these calls are spaced about seven to eight, nine days apart. And it's just a matter of building that cadence and building that rhythm. Now, combined with that, you're probably going to be doing other things as well. But, you know, the, the wonderful thing about raising capital is people that want to do it or, in your case, start a fund, they just have to face the fears and they just have to move forward. Yeah, I love it. Bradblazer.com yep. and Brad Blazer on Instagram. A good place to go. Check out the books and stuff. So I got one final question for you, Brad. I love to ask my guests this question. I'm going to put you on the spot here. Yeah. Uh, how it works, I'm going to just open up the mic. Two, you got two minutes you can share whatever you think would be most valuable to leave with this audience. So you can talk Ooh. religion, you can talk politics, you can talk no. family, faith, money, raising, whatever you want to talk about. You've got an open mic, whatever's <laughs> just inside of your soul that you want to get out and send to the world. You've got two minutes uninterrupted. Here we go, Brad, on the spot. You know, what I'll tell you, you know, when you're closing investors, like we talked about earlier, you have to speak with confidence and you have to speak to them as an equal. You can't speak up to them. You can't speak down to them. It's like, man, I do this all day long. It's just money. And so let's go. Let's do it. And so I'll share a story with you. When I was in the oil business, we had this very wealthy doctor. He was a retired neurosurgeon. The guy flew out to meet us on a private jet that he owned. So I knew the guy was certainly qualified but for whatever reason he just would not invest I mean he was like you know interested kept asking all the right questions etc cetera, etc cetera, Bridger 
But I think it was, again, the hesitancy and the fear of knowing that there's the risk of dry, you know, drilling a dry hole, losing the entire uh, investment. And so what we used to do in my company twice a week is we would end the day at 3 and then come back at 6 and I would order pizzas and stuff and we would stay until 9 calling out to California to take advantage of the two-hour time difference and catch people as they were coming off work or getting home there. And, uh, you know, largely admit, you know, sometimes we had a couple beers and I probably had one too many. And so one night I was on the phone with this wealthy, affluent doctor, and I just said to him, Dr. Snack, it just takes two things to invest in an oil well. And he said, what? And I said, big balls and lots of money. Which of the two don't you have? And then I just bit my tongue. I was like a 24-year-old kid. I'm like, I can't believe I said that. And after, you know, what seemed like forever, he said, tell me again how much three units in your program cost, Brent. I said, doctor, go get your checkbook and the subscription package we sent. I'd love to welcome you aboard. He became one of my biggest investors. But wow. it's that confidence and the ability to talk to them just like they're one of your drinking buddies and say, buddy, come on, man, it's just money. You know, you know you're a rich dude. Come on, let's, let's go do it. And so I rang the bell and I'm like, guys, I got like the best clothes. You all have my permission to use this because it works. Uh, but, you know, it's largely that mindset, you know, that you're here to do business. And I think the biggest mistake people have in raising money is I use the expression, they're great at selling flirt. You know, as an entrepreneur and as a business owner, I always used to tell my salespeople, don't come with me about a story about, oh, he's going to invest next week or he's going to think about it. I'm like, dude, just show me the numbers because the numbers don't tell a lie. People lie all the time. And so you always have to get to a point with an investor and close them and just say, Bridge, how many units in our program do you want? You want three units, two units, one unit, or no units? And I always give the option to the individual to say no and to get out. Why? Because invariably, if you present that opportunity, they don't do that. They come back and they go, well, tell me again how much two units cost. And then that's where you can move forward and close them on those two units. And so, again, it gets back to having done this for a long time, knowing what to say, but also the psychology behind why you do it. And that's a true story in the two minutes of how I closed a guy that was on the fence that really <laughs> didn't want to close. I love it, Brad. <laughs> Big balls or lots of money and lots of money, which one that you don't don't have. <laughs> That that's awesome. I'm sure that's plashed on the wall now in the in the yeah. cover. Like I mean, at least till you guys do you guys close doors. But um, Brad, it's been a pleasure having you on again. BradBlazar.com. Yeah. Go check out his books, all that kind of stuff. Uh, Brad, thank you so much. We're gonna have Absolutely. to have you back. It's a pleasure, Bridger. Thank you, brother. Um, have a good one again. BradBlazer.com. Follow him on Instagram. He's got great content out there. Thank you guys, and we'll see you on the next episode. Hey, it's Bridger here. I have four free and simple ways I can further help you to scale your business or fund. Number one, I have a YouTube channel with actually, I don't, to toot my own horn, I think it's decent content on there. Go check it out. Bridger Pennington is a YouTube channel. We go very deep on funds. Number two, I have a one hour free training at investmentfundsecrets.com. We go very deep into how to actually start and scale your very own fund from ground zero. Number three, you can join our free private Facebook group of like-minded people like me and you that go out and launch and scale funds. I go live in there once a week. The name of the group is Investment Fund Secrets. And then number four, finally, I have a free PDF guide on how to actually launch and scale your fund. If you go to investmentfundsecrets.com slash guide, 
you can download that guide. Now, finally, people always ask me, Bridger, can you help me one-on-one? -on -one? Can we work together? Yes, I don't wanna talk about that in here, but if you wanna learn more, message me, Bridger at investmentfundsecrets.com or just DM me on Instagram. Thank you guys, and I'll see you in the next episode.